HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2020. Cheers. This year, when I tune into the Super Bowl, I won't be rooting for one team over the other or really giving that much thought to what happens on the field at all. No, I'll be watching. But like 26% of all Americans, I'll be tuning in for the ads. I love Super Bowl commercials, and not because they're funny, which they sometimes are, or because they make me want to buy something, which they never do, but because you would be hard-pressed in the modern era to find anything more painstakingly designed than one of these multi-million dollar 30-second spots. Nothing is left to chance. Every actor, every shot, every prop, every cut, every line of dialogue, all of it, the whole thing has been test audienced and focus grouped and willed into existence by this sheer force of pure, unadulterated capitalism. It is total product designed to do nothing but be ingested and internalized and spat back in service of a larger market share. And while there are lots of fun ads out there for cars and airlines and soda, you know there's only one type of ad that really takes this philosophy of shameless consumerism to heart. Because if you want to talk lowest common denominator here, and I very much do, there is nowhere else to turn but the silver bullet, America's sweetheart itself, light beer. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. I'm super excited that it's soft shell crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious. People think, oh, tomato is a tomato. No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So when they come to, to Hampton or even, you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find a incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in Conway. He's it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey everybody, welcome back to the show where we talk about America's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And today, we're going to go a little deeper and talk about how laws shape drinks and design shapes drinks and how public perception shapes drinks and how those drinks turn around and later, yes, they do shape history. We're going to do something else a little different too. We're going to take a break from our usual diet of spirits and cordials and fortified wines and fresh juices to talk about something that's been a big, big part of American drinking for the last hundred years, light beer. See, L-I-G-H-T beer didn't always used to be L-I-T-E beer. In fact, that split only came after decades of blissful marriage between the two. So to get to the bottom of where they split up, we need to go back to where they both started. And that is the night of April 6th. 1933. When FDR was elected in 32, Prohibition was pretty much already dead. The 18th Amendment had gone off the rails in a true worst-case scenario type fashion, depriving the government of billions in lost tax revenue while also spiraling off into one of the worst organized crime epidemics in U.S. history. So running on a repeal campaign was something of a no-brainer for the younger Roosevelt, but during his first hundred days in office, it turned out the new executive had another trick up his sleeve. See, the 18th Amendment banned the manufacture, transportation, import, export, and sale of intoxicating liquors. But in the spring of 1933, the president signed the Cullen Act, which declared that all beer, brewed at 3.2% or lower, is legally non-intoxicating. In other words, hello loophole, hello beer. But they did it obviously for political reasons. I mean, this is the end of, of prohibition rather than trying to create some newfangled style of beer that consumers might want to have. This is entirely a political question. To get a flavor for what this time was like, I talked to Garrett Peck, who's a historian and a tour guide from the D.C. area. He's the author of The Prohibition Hangover, Alcohol in America from Demon Rum to Colt Cabernet. And in the book, he talks about what happened that night in the spring of 1933, and more importantly, what sort of path it put us on as a nation of beer drinkers. At the stroke of midnight on April 7th, huge crowds took to the streets, streaming out of their houses towards the pharmacies, pool halls, wherever they were serving legal beer again for the first time in 13 years. To say this was a rush job for the brewers is an understatement. This was a coast-to-coast -coast Black Friday meets St. Patrick's Day come Mardi Gras bender with only the biggest brewers able to satisfy demand. Most of the heavy lifting was done by a trio of familiar names, Pabst, Schlitz, and Anheuser-Busch. And the reason you've still heard of them a century later is because they, unlike the thousands of other brewers who faded into obscurity, they invested in infrastructure. See, Adolphus Busch was one of the first brewers to buy refrigerated rail cars in the 1800s to move his beer out of St. Louis and across the country. He embraced pasteurization and installed a modern bottling line to keep his product fresher for longer. So, when the brewer's bat signal went up in 1933, Bush and his flagship brand, Budweiser, were ready for it. Bud ultimately created a national brewing market, and, and which we all benefit very much from that. It's really benefited all the craft brewers as well, you know, because they, it's created a tremendous amount of awareness of beer. I'm very, very thankful ultimately for Budweiser, even though I don't actually drink the actual brand Budweiser. But I'm thankful for the company for what they've done over, over history. Yeah, you know, we, we, we would not have the brewing market as we know it today without Budweiser. Even before the country went dry, Bush and his successors saw the need for a national distribution network. 
It's why they were so well poised to meet demand on the eve of repeal. Demand that had dwindled, by the way, not increased during the nation's 13-year experiment with sobriety. See, we'd like to have this image of factories filling up again as cheerful brewers march back to work, swinging their lunch pails and whistling a happy tune as they take their place in the assembly line and start pumping out bottle after bottle after bottle of fresh, delicious beer, but that is just not what happened. Before Prohibition, there were an estimated 1,300 breweries in the U.S. Now, on the eve of repeal, there were obviously <clears throat> zero, but that number didn't automatically skyrocket back to pre-prohibition levels once beer was legalized. In fact, it wasn't even close. Things had changed during prohibition. And this isn't like when you go back to your favorite bar after you say you're not drinking for a month and you really only make it a week and a half and everything's the same. This is 13 years. The U.S. is different. The world is different. And while the teetotalers failed to smack the beer out of America's mouth, they succeeded in stigmatizing alcohol so badly that way fewer people went back to the bottle after Prohibition was over. Consumption wouldn't rebound to pre-1920 levels for years, and politicians, as politicians do, they found a way to get out on the action. The government, at the end of Prohibition, was telling the brewers, like, you need to keep the price of beer down to a nickel. You know, that's going to help me, the politician, uh, get reelected because I'm going to tell everybody I've made sure these brewers who are terrible people by the way uh, are not going to be you know bad to you so instead of seven percent cents or ten cents beer's going to cost a nickel because we made sure of it. Garrett Oliver is the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery. He also wrote The Brewmaster's Table and when it comes to the history of food and drink in America he's an all-around smart guy. We spent an afternoon chatting above his brewery in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn about big beer and its long, slow seduction of the American public. The brewer says, how are we going to keep the price of beer down to a nickel? It's like, well, you know, if you remove all the materials <laughs> and put the money into advertising, you could actually do something like that. And plus, it's been 12 years Who's really going to remember what beer tastes like anyway? They're going to be very glad to have this thing on which we can make massive profits. Adjunct lagers, that is, beer brewed with corn and rice instead of a steady diet of grains like wheat and barley, that had been around since the 1800s. But where before they had been a choice, cost-cutting measures, the pressures of national distribution, and a lack of any consumer say in the matter, turned them into the default setting for the nation's beer-drinking public. While adjunct lagers were not amazing tasting beers, and for that matter, still aren't, I can't fault the nation's brewers for turning to them in their hour of need. The days after Prohibition were desperate times, and the politicians breathing down their necks weren't the only legal hoops they had to jump through either. In 1933, John D. Rockefeller Jr., one of the richest men in America and a vocal teetotaler, broke with his fellow Baptists and called for repeal in a book called Toward Liquor Control. He stated the very obvious when he said that prohibition wasn't working, and instead, the best way forward for the country was for liquor to be heavily regulated and taxed. This led to the creation of 18 so-called control states, wherein only state-run stores can buy alcohol from manufacturers and sell it to members of the public. In one form or another, a lot of these states are still around today, regrettably. I live in Virginia, and I used to live in Virginia too. Um, I can buy beer and wine at the supermarket, but... If I want to buy distilled spirits, I've got to go to a state-run liquor store, and you, you'd think you're shopping at something in the Soviet Union. 
We actually talked about Virginia's state-run liquor stores in the last episode we did on Prohibition, and my opinions since then are more or less the same. They're still not fun. But for the states that opted for a less draconian method of control, they bought into something known as the three-tier system, which at this point we kind of have to talk about, despite the fact that it is both extremely complicated and extremely boring. And now, to explain the three-tier system of alcohol distribution in the United States, Helen Hayes award-winning actress Mary Myers reprises her role as Karl Marx. Before Prohibition, it was common for brewers to buy or pay off saloons to sell their product, and only their product, directly to the public. This allowed them, the manufacturers, to sell directly to the consumer, cutting out any middlemen and maximizing profit for themselves. So, two tiers, manufacturer and retailer, both controlled by the same entity, which in turn controlled the means of production. This established a monopoly, wherein their products, and only their products, could be sold at these so-called tied houses, which were not only deemed anti-competitive, but encouraged rampant over-drinking, as it allowed big brewers to dictate the terms of the market, not to mention the manufacturer direct prices, which afforded patrons the ability to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink until they fell over. Allegedly. So, something needed to change. The three-tier system established a middle step between the manufacturer and the retailer. A government-mandated distributor overseen by the state who is legally required to purchase the alcohol from the manufacturer before it can be sold to the retailer thus creating an additional industry in between buyer and seller, which takes its cut of the profit while producing nothing and contributing nothing, except to limit the influence of the manufacturer and the retailer and curtail the voice of the workers in determining the future of their industry. Now, in theory... The three-tier system would bust up these tiny little monopolies various brewers and distillers had crafted across the country with their vertically integrated direct-to-bar arrangements. It's ironic that this was John Jr.'s idea, considering John D. Rockefeller Sr. saw his standard oil empire busted up by the Supreme Court for being a vertically integrated monopoly. But regardless, the idea stuck. And for a while, it curbed the influence of big beer. But as the market shrank and demand grew the few big brewers left in the game started finding ways to turn the system to their advantage. In the middle of the 20th century, Anheuser-Busch and their competitors started experimenting with reining in the theoretically independent second tier of distribution. They were subtle about it at first, and then they weren't so subtle. Since the three-tier system was created and then promptly left to fend for itself by the government, there weren't a lot of laws keeping things regulated. Oversight, the kind that could stop huge manufacturers from offering incentives to distributors that smaller companies couldn't match, that just didn't exist. So it started out small, with loyal wholesalers gaining access to Budweiser's coast-to-coast distribution network, but it grew, coming to a head decades later when Anheuser-Busch openly threatened distributors who carried competing products. And they weren't the only ones looking to profit off of America's changing habits at the grocery store, either. The post-war boom meant more mouths to feed across America, and we rose to the challenge with an industrial farming system crossbred with modern, sexy new technology like Wonder Bread. 
Finally, this was a solution to the problem of a loaf of bread that would give you a royal pain in the ass to slice, only to go bad on you three days later. Never mind that Wonder Bread technically isn't bread, it's easy. The 50s were on, and we were in the full-on sexting and dirty pictures phase of our decades-long nationwide tawdry little romance with convenience. People will, as humans, take convenience over almost anything. Back in Brooklyn, Garrett and I talked about this period in American eating history, a time he's fond of referring to as the Matrix. In those years, between 20 and 33, you had the establishment of radio networks, you had the establishment of roadway networks, you had the establishment of trucking routes with, you know, with things. So you had the ability to sell everybody one thing and also the ability to uh, advertise it and to deliver it to them for the first time in history. And that basically created the matrix. And that was, they basically said to themselves, if we could make everyone forget all the other stuff that went before, all the cheeses and all the breads and all the beers and all the ice creams and everything that they liked, and we present them with one version of everything. This is the cheese, this is the beer, this is the bread, you know, this is the ice cream. There are three colors, but there's actually only one flavor. And so you could then sell everybody the food through your company and you could get all the money. Not part of the money, not your fair share of the money, all of the money. By the 1960s, breweries were closing. The population was booming. Taste was changing. And the big players were working on an innovation, something new, something they could use to harness the zeitgeist of the era, harness all of those changes, and then turn around and sell all of the beer. How deep does the rabbit hole go? That's coming up after this. I say this a lot when I talk to people on the radio, but one thing I absolutely love to do when I'm interviewing someone is to make them guess the future. It's fun, it's informative, it's a little bit mean, but in like a nice way. So now I'm going to give myself a taste of my own medicine and I am going to predict what the hot trend of summer 2021 is going to be. And me personally, I see a return to the classics. I think people have been cooped up in their homes and their apartments for an entire year and they are sick of spinning their Negronis for themselves. And I personally cannot wait to sit down in a bar and have someone place that first beautiful daiquiri of the summer made just for me. And then of course I'm going to tip them like a maniac. But I got to admit, for me personally, making drinks, it's been a while. And no matter if you're a seasoned veteran or this is your first summer slinging cocktails, you can never be too well-versed in the classics. Fortunately, Diageo Bar Academy has me and you covered. With their vast array of resources, they equip bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better, consistently raising the bar on industry standards. So whether you're a bartender, a barback, a manager, or you're completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills, or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. And it's free. Should I say that again? I'm going to say that again. It's free. 
So that's pretty cool too. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Seriously, why wait? Go to diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's totally on the house and you will be amazed at everything they have to offer. One more time, that's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh cut hay and meadow sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the midnight marigold tomorrow either. Trust me. To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. Cheers. By the mid-60s, beer had an image problem. Americans were getting healthier, they were taking better care of themselves, they were exercising, and unfortunately, they discovered that beer isn't actually that good for you. Shortly after consumption reached its lowest point in decades, a biochemist working for Brooklyn's Rheingold Brewery made an interesting discovery. It was possible, he realized, to remove the starch from his brewery's product, thus cutting down on carbs and calories. 
Rheingold rolled it out as Goblinger's Diet Beer, a name so totally unappetizing it seems destined to flop, which, of course, it quickly did. The recipe wound up in the hands of Meisterbrau, who sold it as Meisterbrau Light until they got snapped up by Miller in 1972. Seeing the potential, but not wanting to repeat the mistakes of the past, Miller kept the recipe, but they pitched it to the public as a manly man's beer that tasted great, and yet, somehow, was less filling. Now, America had flirted with low-voltage beers before. There was a style of beer called light dinner ale, or family ale, that was low in alcohol and sold to the middle and upper classes as a temperance beverage. The idea was... You show your class as a gentleman and as a family man by drinking it, thus making it one of the very first lifestyle brands. But what they were working on in 72 wasn't that. It may have started out as a 3.2% idea on the eve of repeal, but now it was an entirely different beast. Now it was Miller Lite. The results were astronomical. Sales for that one brand alone vaulted Miller, which had been a perennial also-ran, into the number two spot on the nation's leaderboard. For the old guard, the shakeup was quick, and it was merciless. Schlitz tried to emulate Miller Lite's success without understanding what had made it so popular in the first place. To them, it was just a field of light, watery beers in which the lightest, wateriest of all was surging to the top. So they gutted their recipe, dumbed down their core brand, and promptly imploded. They were bought out by a competitor just a few years after that, and in St. Louis, people noticed. You know, if you read, uh, uh, you know, the story of Anheuser-Busch, when August, uh, one of the Augustus Bushes talked about light beer, you know, his phrase was, well, it's not really beer, but we had to do that. August Bush III was convinced that his father wasn't reacting fast enough to changing tastes, so he staged a corporate coup in 1974. He devoted years to developing the perfect answer to Miller's Golden Boy, something just light enough that people could convince themselves it was healthy, but just flavorful enough that someone somewhere might actually kind of like it. And in 1982, they had it. The 4.2% champion of the beer world, the one, the only, Bud Light. Today, Bud Light sells more beer in America than any other brand by a lot. In 2017, Bud's new parent company, AB InBev, shipped 33 million barrels of the stuff. Its nearest competitor sold a little over 16. And the design on the brand is ruthless. According to their website, Bud beers go through 100 different package quality checks before they leave the facility. Now, I don't know what a package quality check is, the website doesn't really say, and Budweiser didn't respond to requests for interviews, so I can't tell for certain. But frankly, I'm not surprised that consistency is the name of the game when it comes to making Bud Light. Whatever you think of the flavor, and whatever you think of the company, you have to admit that it is impressive that you can get a Bud Light in New York, or Boston, or LA, or London, or Sydney, or Tokyo, or Antarctica, and it will taste exactly the same. That, my friends, is consistency that every bartender on Earth needs to be jealous of. Budweiser, if they wanted to, they could produce the world's best beer, you know, if they wanted to. It would cost a lot more, especially given the the, the scale it's going to take to reproduce it across, I think, all, the, all 12 of the breweries on the U.S. But, you know, it certainly could be done. The Garretts don't agree on a lot when it comes to Budweiser. 
Historian Garrett says that we can't chastise a company for making money off of a popular product. Brewer Garrett compared them to Darth Vader more than once during our interview. However, on this one point they agree. Budweiser is fantastic at being Budweiser. I'll tell you the truth. When I was in college, we drank Budweiser when we had money. You know, we were poor. We almost never had any money. But we drank Bud when we had money because it tasted like water. And we were happy with that because the other beers that we could actually afford tasted much, much worse than water. You know, they were terrible. And so technical superiority uh, was a real thing. In Brooklyn, after a little bit of pushing, Brewer Garrett even paid them something that could maybe potentially have been a compliment. Is there any part of this apparatus, the matrix, this this all the money machine that you certainly don't like but admire a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is, of course, you know, it's what's that line? I can't remember if it's from Jaws or Alien, but it was talking about an eating machine perfectly designed, devoid of all delusions of morality. I admire its purity. Survival. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. That part's actually from Alien. At this point in the game, Big Beer owned the market. The number of active breweries in the United States had plummeted from over 2,000 at its peak to just 89 by 1978. Meanwhile, three companies, Miller, Coors, and Anheuser-Busch, controlled 80% of the market. One of them was doing so well that they decided to open their own theme park. Now, it wasn't easy, but after months of planning and research and digging, we here at Bar None tracked down a member of staff who was there on day one when Busch Gardens Williamsburg first opened its doors in May 1975. So, um, I'm gonna, I'll kick this off the way I usually kick it off. Who am I talking to today? Well, you're talking to Bob Benson, your, your dad. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Okay. I didn't have to track him that far. In the summer after his sophomore year of college, my dad signed up to be a ride operator at Anheuser-Busch's newly completed Busch Gardens Williamsburg. Not because he was enamored with the brewery, he says. It was just a cool summer job. Although he did like the idea of getting in on something like that on the ground floor. We didn't really have much of a perception of Bush Gardens as it was being built. We knew that they were building some big amusement park out there by the brewery, but we didn't really have a clear sense of what that was until we, until we started to see the flyers and the other information about jobs being available. So you were aware that there was a brewery out there. there was, that was a general knowledge thing that people on campus were of, like, oh, there's this brewery out there. Well, it was a red-blooded college kid in 1975 we absolutely were aware of it the funny thing is my dad and i went to the same school and i had no idea that there was a brewery in the same zip code where i had english class until my last semester chalk it up to the drinking age being 18 in the 70s i guess but it is interesting talking to my dad hearing how large a presence bud used to have on campus I remembered hearing stories from way before I started writing the show of how the Bush Gardens employees were drilled on the finer points of Budweiser's superior beechwood aging process. I remember, when I was growing up, that it sounded like a pretty cool place to work. 
In my opinion, the park contributed to the perception that Anheuser-Busch was a classy company. And a classy company would make quality beer. I still believe to this day that their beer was better quality than some of, than other brands, certainly the cheaper brands that us college students would buy from the delicatessens in town. So I think the park, again, helped, helped advance the perception that the, this is a quality brand. The beer is high quality. The places, the parks that they own are high quality. The people who work there are high quality. You're, you're going to get your money's worth here. In 2008, when I was a college student, Anheuser-Busch's decades-long run of good luck finally ended. Unbeknownst to me, except for a few newspaper articles I saw here and there, the king of beers failed to fend off a hostile foreign takeover. They were acquired to the tune of $52 billion by InBev, a Brazilian-Belgian fusion of superbreweries that controlled some of the most recognizable brands on the planet, and now they had Budweiser too. They changed the name of the company, now easily the largest beer seller on the planet, to AB InBev, and they sold off a bunch of the old company's more ancillary properties, Busch Gardens being one. Maybe that's why when I went to the park as a college kid, I didn't get the same warm fuzzies for Bud that everybody else did in 1975. At that time, and perhaps to this day, Budweiser and Michelob position, trying to position themselves as better than your average mass-produced beer through the quality of the ingredients and the way they make it and just the company's attention to quality, whether that's real or not, but that's how they present themselves. Uh, I'm conditioned to think that Budweiser and Michelob, when I'm looking at beers on the, on the supermarket shelf and I'm looking at Miller and all the other beers, I scoff at the others and I think Budweiser, Budweiser has that crisp beechwood aged taste and Michelob, I, I get Michelob when I'm getting a little bit better beer. I'll buy craft beers now because you've taught me that there's better beer out there. <laughs> but I still perceive those brands as being uh, better than better than others. Whatever Budweiser was doing in the 70s, it was working. Some combination of cost-cutting, advertising, and roller coaster construction had established the brewery as a brand of undisputed quality, a true king of beers. But underneath all that, something different was brewing. In 1979, unbeknownst to my dad, who at that point was no longer in the employ of Anheuser-Busch, Ken Grossman opened Sierra Nevada in Chico, California. Now, the term craft brewery didn't even exist back then, and even once it did, Sierra Nevada wasn't the first. But it was a big step forward and a challenge to big beer's domination of American taste buds. Craft was coming. But first, it had a lot of work to do. For us... You know, we needed to change a few things. Um, the laws were, you know, written back in the 50s, which is the last time there was an active production brewery in Washington, D.C., and it just never been updated throughout the years because, in part, there hadn't been a business that uh, was affected by them. By the time Brandon Skull opened D.C. Brow in 2009, a lot of craft beer's heavy lifting had been done already. Throughout the 80s and 90s, America's breweries had climbed up off the endangered species list, and their numbers cracked a 1,000 for the first time in a very, very long while. As far as the market was concerned, the time was right for a full production brewery in the nation's capital. Logistically, though, it was a little more complicated. Uh, just for example, um, we were able to sell beer out of the tasting room direct to consumers, but we couldn't taste them on it. 
Um, also, they couldn't drink here. So those are two, two big issues with us having a successful tasting room model as part of our brewery plan. Even though retailers like bottle shops and grocery stores were allowed to have tastings as part of their business model, manufacturers like, say, the first production brewery in Washington, D.C. since 1956 couldn't do the same without risking their license and a hefty fine. The laws just weren't up to date on this, so Brandon did something that he never saw himself doing. He wrote one. I can't imagine that when you had it in your head to, like, when you had the, 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 the dream of an idea of starting a brewery, I'm going out on a limb and I'm going to say that no part of that was, and I'm going to write a piece of legislation and I'm going <laughs> to lobby Congress. Like, talk to me about what that was like. Yeah, so, I mean, we basically... Um, Spent a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of our precious capital startup money. Um, we, we, you know, hired a lawyer that specialized in ABRA work. ABRA is the Alcoholic Beverage Regulation Administration, a D.C. body with a very D.C. name. And they helped us to actually write the legislation. And then we had to get it sponsored by council members. Um, and then it, it went to a vote. Um, there was a hearing where we had to testify. It was quite the process uh, between writing the legislation, proposing it, and defending it. Um, it was a, a, a several-month ordeal, and uh, like I said, it was quite expensive. But uh, in the end, it sort of laid the groundwork for our business to succeed. And also, it took down some of the um, roadblocks that you know made it hard for businesses of this type to, to be successful in the district. Today, Washington, D.C. has over a dozen breweries, a handful of distilleries, Still no senators, but that's a different podcast, and a winery, if you can believe it. A large part of that progress is thanks to the founding legislation that D.C. Brow laid down, but the district is by no means alone in fighting an uphill battle against antiquated, out-of-date liquor laws. One of the absolute best of these is from Utah, where until very recently, it was illegal to pour beer or mix drinks anywhere where anybody could see it. This led to the birth of the so-called Zion Curtain, which was this thick pane of frosted glass that protected the sensitive eyes of the drinking public from the unspeakable horrors of watching beer go into a glass. Now, that particular law was repealed in 2017, so don't go crazy, jazz fans. But it begs the question, why in the 21st century are we still dealing with weird crap like this? Well, the 21st Amendment, as important and very necessary as it was was a little short on details. And now, to read the text of the 21st Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, actress Mary Myers reprises her Helen Hayes award-winning role as Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The 18th article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. The transportation or importation into any state territory or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. That is all. In other words, alcohol is legal now, except in states that choose to stay dry and will stay out of their business. That's it. At the time, it made sense. Prohibition had gone bad and it needed to be thrown out quick. The nation didn't have the luxury of designing a perfectly crafted piece of legislation. They needed repeal now. And so the logistics of how exactly that was going to work got punted to the states. The details could wait until later. And a lot of them still are. 
For example, in my home state of New York, you can sell beer and wine in the same place and wine and liquor in the same place, but beer and liquor in the same store? <laughs> Sorry, that's too far. Plus, we class Angostura bitters as food for some reason. But my absolute favorite alcohol law in the entire country, by far, is in New Jersey, where if you have a brewery and that brewery has a tasting room and someone wants to drink in that tasting room, they legally have to go on a tour first. This means brewery tours that venture three feet into the brew house involve a lot of pointing and are very scant on information. The last one I went on was a thrilling 30-second whirlwind of knowledge. But it's not all rush tours and frosted glass. The 21st Amendment's lack of direction has some serious consequences, and repeal's legacy of patchwork regulation is a mixed bag, to put it mildly. While we were talking, I asked Brandon about the modern role of the three-tier system. Is it still relevant, or is it a band-aid that inadvertently became permanent? So I think that the system itself is sort of outdated. I think that it, it doesn't really um, benefit the people that it's supposed to, to serve. It was almost originally set up to protect distributors against monopolizing brewers, but it's almost like we've had the reverse happen now where the folks who need the help and the protection are the small brewers who are now sort of stuck in these state-run contracts with, uh, with distributors that, that don't really do anything to, to create success. DC Brow has done pretty well for themselves. The brewery is now in its second decade, and in that time they've had good and not-so-good experiences with their distribution partners. They've seen firsthand the merits a good distributor can bring to a business, like infrastructure or added reach— but on the whole, though, the system still has work to do. I think that it's very easy for that system to be abused by the people who have most of the power in that system, and the people who have the power in that system are the distributors. Even with a vast network of distributors behind them, power was slowly but surely slipping away from big beer by 2011. Craft beer had eaten up 5% of the nation's sales, and the old guard wasn't having much luck catching up. When they were unable to win craft beer drinkers back to their side, companies like Bud's new owner, AB InBev, realized that they had to get in on the action. They launched a bunch of brands that were designed to look like craft beers and act like craft beers and talk like craft beers, but consumers were indifferent and the brands folded. AB InBev saw a valuable lesson in their failed experiment. If they couldn't grow craft beer in a lab, the next best thing was to buy it. On March 28, 2011, the founder and CEO of Goose Island Brewing in Chicago addresses employees with an important message. He'd sold the brewery, 100% of it, to Budweiser. The sale gave Goose Island the coast-to-coast -coast distribution it sorely needed, but it gave AB InBev something it needed just as badly, a path into the craft beer market. Since that sale, the world's biggest beer company has added 11 American craft brews into its fold. Most recently, Ohio's Platform Beer Company just last summer. And this blurs the line between where craft beer ends and where the manufacturers of the lightest light beers on the planet begin. In 2015, AB InBev was fined $150,000 for an illegal arrangement with a music venue in Seattle. An undercover investigation found Bud had exercised, and this is a quote here, undue influence to ensure the venue poured their brands and only their brands. Outwardly, their menu had the appearance of choice. You had Goose Island, Elysian, and Stella on tap, as well as the old workhorses of Bud and Bud Light. But 
In reality, every single one of those beers was owned by AB InBev, which means every single dollar they made in Seattle made its way back to St. Louis. It was exactly the sort of tied house that the three-tier system was designed to prevent. If we've learned anything from prohibition, it's what a mess it can make when you don't have a, you know, a common system for everything um, and everything's legislated differently. Today, three of the top four beers in America are light beers, although only one of them still spells that word with an E. All of them are macro brews, and all of them make up at least 6% of all beer sales in the U.S. And they have something else in common, too. All three of these brews weigh in at exactly 4.2% ABV. It took a century, but light beers gained a full percentage point on where its journey began in 1933. Now, this brings me back to a question that I've been wrestling with ever since I started working on this episode. What is it exactly about being 3.2% alcohol by volume that is so special? That figure pops up again and again like it's a magic number. It starts with the Cullen Act, and it goes all the way to retail laws in Utah that were only relaxed last November. Whenever it shows up in regulations, it doesn't feel like it was picked it feels chosen. I asked Brooklyn Garrett what was up. It almost seems Jungian where it's like we, we gravitate towards like that's sort of the magic number there. Like that's the, re that's the responsible zone. That's the green zone. That's the habitable zone of like that 3.1 to 3.5. Well, I think it is because it kind of balances, it balances your ability to actually process alcohol with the amount that you want to drink. So nobody, most people don't want to drink three pints an hour. That's just like too much liquid. So say that you'd like to drink a pint and a half an hour. Well, what does it turn out to be? The amount of alcohol that you can drink at, you know, at a pint and a half an hour or say almost two pints an hour and not be, you know, over your processing line turns out to fall for a lot of people somewhere around three and a half percent. Now people don't think about that but that's why that is associated with some kind of temperance or balance or something in people's minds. You know, they think that they don't think about the ABV of things, but they do. Whatever your light beer of choice, and however strong it is, it didn't get that way by accident. It was made that way. In 2018, total beer consumption in the U.S. actually dropped. And most of the serious beer geeks that I know, we've all swung back to drinking lower ABV brews in our off hours. The double IPAs and the imperial stouts of our 20s, those have given way to lagers and session ales now that our livers aren't as young as they used to be. In fact, a bunch of independent craft brewers who made their name with hoppy IPAs, they're now proudly brewing adjunct lagers alongside their more artisanal offerings. It's a page directly out of Big Beer's playbook, and it's either a classic bringing the fight to the enemy or living long enough to see yourself become the villain. It says that there is something inherently appealing about a light bread soup that hovers between 3 and 5%, but it could be saying something else, too. It could say, hey, you guys were right. As we wrapped up in Brooklyn, Garrett and I got talking one last time about the ruthless efficiency of America's beer industrial complex. He mused for a second, and then he said this. Well, I mean, we all admire a shark. You know, in a certain way. That's true. We might, we might fear it, and we're, but, but like when the shark week comes on, 
you know, don't tell me you're not going to stop for a minute while you're <laughs> while you're flipping through, you know, flipping through channels. You know, there's a reason why there is Shark Week. You know, and uh, you know, there's no, uh, you know, for all the beautiful tropical fish, there is no tropical fish week, and there's not going to be tropical fish week. Oh, like, oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, they're beautiful, and you're not going to watch them. What you want to see is sharks. What does it mean to make something well? Is the 21st Amendment well made because it accomplished an extremely important goal in spite of the design anarchy of its wording? Or is the uber-meticulous process behind macro-brewing better, even if it is in service of the lowest common denominator? What yardstick do we use to measure success? Design or results? AB InBev reported growth of 5.9% in the first quarter of last year. It sold $12.6 billion worldwide and cleared almost $8 billion in profits. Bud Light outsold the competition again, bringing in $1.4 billion in sales. And almost 35 million people tuned in for Shark Week. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. A huge thank you to our amazing guests today, Garrett Oliver, Garrett Peck, Brandon Skull, and Bob Benson. Garrett O. and Brandon both run fantastic breweries that are absolutely worth your time. Garrett P. is an amazing writer whose latest, The Great War in America, World War I and its Aftermath, is unputdownable, and Bob Benson is, and this is a real statistic, the world's best dad. We were also unbelievably lucky to be joined in the studio today by Keegan Cassidy and by Mary Myers, who played Karl Marx and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She's won a Helen Hayes Award. Did you know that? You should definitely check her out. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Tune in next time for a story of envy, mismatched rivals, and what I still maintain is one of the best rum drinks ever invented. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. <laughs>